Literary Disco, When Animals Attack. We'll begin with a nature-themed bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will present one of our favorite nature or animal-based works of literature. And then we will talk about three articles, all of which are available online, and links can be found on our Facebook, our Twitter feed, and our homepage. Jessica Gross, A Death in Yellowstone from Slate, about the forensics and politics of investigating two bear maulings from 2011. Rick Shapiro's The Worst Story I Ever Heard from Esquire about a family that raised a chimpanzee and eventually suffered a devastating attack. And Tim Zimmerman's The Killer in the Pool, which tells the story of a killer, killer whale. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hey. I have Halloween candy in my mouth. Wait, did you go trick-or-treating? Why would you No, have... because I'm an adult and children come to oh, me. Oh, that's creepy that they just come to you. That they sense my maternity. <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? <laughs> that, that's what you're going to tell the cops when they show up? I'm sorry, that child sensed my maternity? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so who wants to go first with their nature? I would love to go first. So I don't know if uh, I'm the only one of the three of us, but when I was a kid, I had to read a shitload of Jack London. And maybe it's because I grew up in Northern California, where he is, uh, I think he's an institution everywhere, but all over Northern California, there's like shopping centers called Jack London Square and things like that. So I read a ton of it. And his story, To Build a Fire, I have loved since the first time I read it when I was probably... 10 years old and I hadn't read it in a long time and I read it before this episode just now and then I read it the other day because there's a a new biography of Jack London that they reviewed in the New Yorker last week where they talk a lot about how Jack London wrote constantly about um, being starving and also wrote constantly from the point of view of animals and so I was I've had Jack London in my head a bit so I just reread To Build a Fire, and I, I'd forgotten how much Jack London anthropomorphizes the dog, but it's really pretty salient for what we're going to talk about uh, later in the episode, about these instances of um, people and animals, wild animals, and our perceived trust of them or our perceived knowledge of them based on really what is, you know, in essence, we see that they have eyes, so therefore we think they have, you know, the same working emotional values that we have. Um, but what Jack London does in the story is, you know, he anthropomorphizes the dog, but he also says, but the dog didn't really know that, or, you know, the dog would never know X, Y, or Z. But the reason the dog doesn't help the man who freezes to death is because the man was never nice to him. The man had never cuddled him or loved him. It had always, um, whipped him and lashed him basically. And so therefore the dog, you know, doesn't feel any compunction towards, really helping him out. So it, it's a it's a fascinating story and, you know, a largely plotless one. It's a guy is walking to a camp. It's super cold out. He is not um, very smart about how cold it actually is. He tries to build a fire. He fails. He freezes to death. Um, but it has with it a lot of the conflict plots that would be inside of a more complex story. So it is a man versus nature story, but it's also a man versus animal and man versus society. Here's a guy who doesn't know the land very well. He presumes that what he knows about things that he's learned from someone else, he can apply to this wild world and the wild world, you know, envelops him. It's, you know, it's man versus God because he, you know, doesn't have the faith probably to guide him through all all these different things that would normally be in a story, except for man versus machine, really. Um, are in this story. And it, you know, can take it takes you all of about nine minutes to read the story. But it sticks with you because 
I know every time I've gone camping, and I have to admit, um, as a Jew, we don't do a lot of camping. Um, or just as a wimp. Let's, yeah, let's just target as, it back as, right on you. <laughs> well, I, I like to be warm. And, and every time I've, like, even, even recently, we were at um, a wedding for a friend of ours. And there was a lot of outdoor activity. And I was thinking, <laughs> all right, if it goes freezing cold out here, because it got awfully cold, how, like, at what temperature do I need to really start, you know, thinking about who I'd eat? You know, God, what, it was like 55 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> That's fucking cold, man. It didn't even get close to um, freezing. Oh my god! But no, no, there, we, there's one point we were walking to the woods, and like the people that were with us um, had gone off the trail and were behind us. And our our nature guide, who I didn't trust, um, was like, "Well, I hope they don't get lost. People can get lost out here in these woods for a long time." And I'm like, "We are literally 50 yards from the road." But then I thought, "But wait a minute." That's the sort of situation where you do get lost, yes. and that's the reason you hear about it, is that they were found 50 yards from the road, frozen solid. So, you know, I think about those things when I'm out in nature, because <laughs> I have absolutely no ability to deal outside of a Hilton, for the most part, in my life. And so this story is, is, is quite haunting to me. Um, but the other larger issue is Jack London was really obsessed with man inside of nature, and but he was a guy who... You know, could survive within it. It seems like he, you know, his his persona of being the man's man is is, is who he was. I was but... going to ask you about this because I've never read any Jack London. I, I've read, well, no. When I was a kid, we listened to Call of the Wild on audiobook, right? So I mm-hmm. remember that. But for some reason, I have the impression that his persona outshines his talent. Is that not true? Like, is is he actually a good writer who really? Um, I think so. Yeah. I, I think he's pretty good. I mean, it's it's a fairly antiquated style. You know, it's yeah. not. It, it's it is of its time, certainly. Which is what nineteen twenties, thirties. Yes, um, and so you know, I, don't, I haven't read a novel of his since I was a little kid. But we had to read all of his stuff when I was a kid. Call of the Wild, White Fang. Um, that was my White favorite. Fang. You know, he's I, he's clearly not in in favor now. I don't think people read a lot of Jack London these days. Um, but I'm interested in this biography that just came out of, about him that um, the New Yorker was talking about because it it said something fascinating and it has like I guess a lot of letters in it um, where he talks about constantly being hungry like people would never understand how hungry he was and that he always wanted to eat and it's just sort of a you know it's it's sometimes when I think about people who have gluten allergies I'm like man. Those people have been starving their entire life. <laughs> have a piece of bread. Make you a lot happier. Well, okay, Grandma. <laughs> that was that. I, I think that Jack London, I mean, I haven't read him in a long time, so I, I am very biased to my childhood self, which loved him also. But I think he comes from a, a different time, you know, a, a time where the pre-animal rights movement... Mm-hmm. He basically exists between the time of like Thoreau, who was like climbing in his like jeans up giant mountains, <laughs> and uh, and Everest being climbed. So Jack London's in the middle of that. He's just a guy who's out in nature all the time and writes about animals in a very direct way with sympathy, but not with total anthropomorphification or you know rabid defense of animal rights. He's somewhere and, and in his, the middle. His books, I should note, were earlier than the 1920s. His first book came out in 1900. Oh, wow. So he's, oh, great. he's even a little then older. What about, so isn't The Call of the Wild have like an entire, like a narrator that's a wolf? 
Like, is yeah. It? Yeah. And White Fang. Yeah. And White, and White Fang. Fang. That's yeah. pretty crazy. I don't know if I could take that super seriously. I think it'd be hard now. I, I think animal narrators are difficult because they're animals and they're not human Remember beings. Remember your Jaws <laughs> quote in there? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and even in even in this story, when it goes into um, into the dog's point of view, and let me, uh, I'll read a, a passage here. Hold on one sec. At the man's heels trotted a dog, a big native husky, the proper wolf dog, gray-coated and without any visible or temperamental difference from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was depressed by the tremendous cold. It knew that it was no time for traveling. Its instinct told it a truer tale than was told to the man by the man's judgment. In reality, it was not merely colder than 50 below zero. It was colder than 60 below, than 70 below. It was 75 below zero. Since the freezing point is 32 above zero, it meant that 107 degrees of frost obtained. The dog did not know anything about thermometers. Possibly in its brain there was no sharp consciousness of a condition of very cold, such was in the man's brain. But the brute had its instinct. It experienced a vague but menacing apprehension that subdued it and made it slink along the man's heels, and that made it question eagerly every unwanted movement of the man, as if expecting him to go into camp or to seek shelter somewhere and build a fire. The dog had learned fire, and it wanted fire, or else to burrow under the snow and cuddle its warmth away from the air. So it's, you know, it both gives the animal human emotion, the dog was depressed, and it pulls away by saying, but it didn't know X, Y, and Z. So right. it's, a, it's a good narrative trick yeah. of saying, you know, here, here is the, the animal as a sentient being, but of course, you know, that's just the author saying it, but it... it in your mind, you're in the dog's point of view no matter what. I, I um, like it. I think it's just bleak enough while still being <laughs> fantastical, you know? What do you, what do you have, Julia? Okay. I, um, I couldn't decide between a couple of books, so I am using this time to delve into a category of books that I can't believe I've never brought up here. But when I was uh, about 10 years old, I got really into horse books. And, um, yeah, one of those people, like horse girls, did you always draw horses? Oh yeah. yeah. Why does that happen? It's such a thing. Oh, okay. Oh, Oh, well, I mean, that's a whole episode in and of itself, but I mean, horses are really, I mean, it's interesting in the context of this discussion because horses are pretty much the biggest animal that we have as a culture totally safely domesticated so you have this experience of having power over a very large thing and i rode horses and i loved it and sometimes i miss it and i would love to do it again because you're in tune with a being that is so much bigger than you and for a little little girl you know who weighs 65 pounds and is very shy that is a experience like no other experience so i did you have like all the horse toys though oh like you're not even gonna know what these are but briar's horses yes i had those yeah i know what those are i don't know what those are I, they're like very like my expensive. Little I had my little ponies. Um, Briar's horses are fancy, like horse models. They're like that big. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A great podcast. <laughs> Visually, wow. What we just did, we moved our hands approximately the like, length of your computer you screen. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, so they're as big as Todd's hands spaced out. Um, but anyway. I I rode horses 
horses and I was into horses, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't really fully a horse girl. I never was very attached to a barn and any of that stuff, but <laughs> I loved By attached to a barn, do you mean you were literally tied to a barn? Like, is that what a normal <laughs> horse girl is? No, no, yeah. no. Okay. I, I see. I have to walk it are back you, is for it, you guys. Are, is being attached to a barn also sort of like being one of those girls who hangs out at the lot lizards, you know, like for it's a truck stop? I'm attached to a I'm barn. A horse girl. I'm blowing all the I'm cowboys. <laughs> I live in a stall. <laughs> Feed me hay. It's no big deal. Uh, they called me the carrot. They just dangled me in front of people. What I mean when I say that. <laughs> Please, yes, is let that, us know. Um, barns. Um, you guys need to get more acquainted with the horse world. So the way that barns <laughs> um, really work are... Our girls, um, or whoever, the young riders, basically girls. enter into indentured servitude. Oh, this is sounding they, uh, better and better. Groom the horses and muck the stalls and uh, clean the tack, which is the bridles and saddles and stuff. And um, they go there all the time, and they basically live there and take care of the animals, and then get to ride them. I just did riding lessons for a very brief time. Gotcha. Um, uh, so anyway, my real love of horses is centered on horse books. So the three best horse books in American literature are Black Beauty, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, actually, although I think it's British. So the three best horse books in children's <laughs> literature, we'll say, are Black Beauty, The Black Stallion, and Misty of Chincoteague. And um, The Black uh, Stallion... I'm- I'm sorry. What, what was that third one? You guys, am I going too fast for yeah. you? All well, hold on. Well, you just blew my mind me. that Black Beauty and Black Stallion were two different things. All my life, yeah. I, uh, I, okay. I, I, there was one that was a movie, but they, I've completely collapsed movies. them in my brain. So the fact that there's two different are they okay. sequels to Wait, each other? Is Black no, Yeah, is Black Stallion a sequel? No. Okay. All right. Everyone, calm down. <laughs> they're very different. <laughs> Black. What was the third thing you said, though? Misty of Chincoteague. I'll tell you guys about Misty all of them. Of, I don't know. Okay. It sounds vaguely racist. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I quit the podcast. <laughs> Two black horses and one. What and was one, it? Yeah, Misty I heard of Chincoteague. <laughs> I don't know. Misty of Chincoteague. Oh, wow. So, okay. So, it's really actually interesting in the context of the essays we're about to read because the Black Stallion is about a ship that crashes and a little boy lands uh, alone on a desert island and he washes up on shore and the only other animal on this island is a wild black stallion and he tames it and he learns to ride it. So it's an adventure story. It's a boy's adventure story. Black Beauty is about a horse that, um, I forget where it comes from, but it it traces the horse through its ownership it's it's basically it's almost like I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's almost like Uncle Tom's Cabin because the horse goes through various uh, abusive uh, owners and kind owners. Jesus Christ! So, so that is the, what it's the horse Uncle Tom's Cabin. I would that's, say that's basically what you just said. That's that's what it is. It's about animal abuse and ownership and like and it basically posits this as horse is like a slave to whoever takes it in. And then it well, dies. you know what is interesting, Julia? There's a great book called Mustang by my friend Deanne Stillman, which is the history of the wild horse in the West. And mm-hmm. it actually talks a lot about that and about how yeah. the horses were brought over on the ships and all that sort of stuff. It's a fascinating book. And it also centers on the killing of these wild horses outside um, Las Vegas a, a few years ago. A Marine went out with a gun and killed a bunch of wild horses. And there's basically, you know, it, it's, a, it's a horrific story. Oh so if, if you'd like... If you'd like, you know, some 
actual history on the horses <laughs> to go along with your racist Uncle Tom Cabin book about horses. That might be a good one. <laughs> you laugh. These books, I, I wish I had read them so I could uh, talk about them in more depth because they're really they're all of this same period of like the golden age of age of children's literature of like Peter Pan and um, Alice in Wonderland. And they're all about these children's relationships with these animals that were once wild and capturing them and domesticating them. And finally, Misty of Chincoteague is about the same thing. There's an island off Misty of Chincoteague. Chincoteague is an island off Maryland and there's wild horses there. And you can, they, I think they still do it every year. They round up a few, trap them, and sell them, and then you have to tame them. So that is, that's a horse book primer for you guys. You guys have a long way to go. What do you have against can, horses? Hold on. Oh, I, I, I love All I, the Pretty Horses, the Cormac McCarthy book. That is a great yep. book. Very, very horse-centric. And I also read The Red Pony by John Steinbeck when I was a kid, which is mm-hmm. a semi-horsey book. If I remember. I like that U2 song. Who's gonna run your wild horses? Oh, oh. And there's that movie and song, Wildfire. We're calling Wildfire. No. All right. So for no? my book. Um... But wait, wait, wait. No, you wait. We have to get into this more. Because what is, what's up with the general disdain for horse books? Well, I think it has to do with... Now, I don't want to offend any of our listeners who are deeply, deeply, deeply into horses. And we have some friends that I'm sure are deeply into horses. But what I recall from being a 13-year-old boy is that the girls that were really into horses that had all the horse toys and they had their folders covered in drawings of horses and everything was horse this and horse that, um, was that they were profoundly strange people and that I was frightened by them. So that's my thing with the horses. I don't know what riders uh, is. I, I guess I've just always been fascinated by because I mean I actually had a pony growing up like at our house. So what? Yeah, uh, yeah. Susie. Whoa, whoa, yeah. horse girl. <laughs> so I grew up with. I, I never rode this pony. I was terrified. Of, I mean, even a pony was big for me when I was two or three, and my brother got thrown from her when we were really young, and I, it was traumatic. But then, yeah, I took horseback riding lessons at one point. Um, in preparation for a, a movie that never happened. But, like, I just... I don't know. I I just never understood the, the obsession. Like, why a horse becomes more than just an animal that you ride or that you enjoy. Like, horse culture and, like, the girl-horse connection thing is just very bizarre to me. It's, it's very strange, and I'm fascinated by it. But um, I don't know. I definitely remember, you know, there was all the... Like, the Black Stallion and Black Beauty, which now are two different things blows my mind and <laughs> it's strange to me that there's such a um i don't know that the, that it that it reaches such a passionate level i guess like but you know it's like anything else you know people dress up as stuffed animals and hang out so okay it's it's weird to me that it's reached um that kind of outsider status because i mean i've heard a lot of people say things like you guys are saying and to me like when i was growing up and again i wasn't that into it but um you know, it's not that different than a kid being obsessed with a sports team or any other activity right. that they just do really intensively during that preteen part of their life. I mean, right. that's where it's mm-hmm. centered on kids from like nine to twelve, and it's it's very empowering. And it used to be a boy thing. You know, right. if you read all these books right. from a hundred years ago, I don't think it's necessarily a girl thing. It just is now because that's the way the culture has shifted, and boys are pushed to other things. But 
you know, the idea that like children are going out and like learning how to be responsible for something so large and powerful and scary is really interesting. And I don't think necessarily, I, I support the horse culture yeah. still. Well, let me throw um, out, I mean, the equivalent weird thing to me is like young boys and cars. Like I don't, yeah, because I totally, I had a poster mm. of a Lamborghini Countach and like, why did I have a poster of a, and then I had a mini Lamborghini Countach model. Like, what, what is the, and it was like, this is my car. This is totally my car. And I want it in this color. Like, what was I talking about? Like, and when I think back on it, it's so absurd that I had this obsession with a, you know, million dollar car made in Italy. Like, it's so stupid. But when you we used ten. to sit around with other kids, like other guys, and we'd sit around and talk about, well, you have the Lamborghini Diablo. I'm going to take the Countach. And like, this is, I'm a Ferrari guy. It's like, what are these conversations well, about? Like, but so it's not it's not that far off from the anthropomorphizing animals right. you know when you look at a powerful car or just a, a, i don't want to draw over broad generalizations because that's usually rider's job but when oh. i see a dude in a giant truck with you know a sticker in the back window that says bad boys drive bad toys invariably i think that guy's a fucking douchebag. and then i see this person in the car and and they look like a douchebag, and i think oh that car is that extension of them that they drive that car to be x y person now that being said i love cars and uh have always loved cars but i've also had a series of shitty cars when i was younger but i totally see the identification with cars with male sexuality also i want a sleek super hot italian car because it's sexy right. and therefore i will be sexy for having right. it um so i think that's that's an easier correlation than than have with the horses with the with the women or with anyone but i think that idea of mastering a creature that is beyond your scope is a very powerful thing for a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old or 12-year-old or whatever okay i feel satiated we may move on i've defended the horse people i wanted to bring up a book that i need to reread because it's been uh over 10 years now and i remember loving this book and it's a very strange but cool book, um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Have you guys heard Oh, yeah. This? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a yeah, classic. It's so um, if anybody's ever... I mean, it was published in 1975, and it won the Pulitzer. Um, and if anybody out there... Because, like, when I was a teenager, like, 15, 16, I got really into the Transcendentalists, the American Transcendentalists. So I was really into... Um, uh, not so much Thoreau, actually, but definitely Emerson and then Whitman, who's not quite strictly a transcendentalist, but I just loved the whole the movement, especially Emerson. I loved his, his essay, Nature. And um, when I discovered Annie Dillard in college, it was clear to me that she's like a modern equivalent of a lot of those transcendentalists. And, you know, I want to reread it because basically what I remember is like little moments of insight because she kind of it's just it's the story of her it's a it's a series of essays or not even separate essays it's one book that's just her spending time near her house right and looking mm -hmm. at animals and experiencing the change of the seasons and it's just meditating on nature uh but it has so many amazing moments that shine through and it, it gets vaguely spiritual it's never specifically spiritual i think she's a pretty hardcore christian actually but um it, it, it's in it's the same way that the transcendentalists get spiritual in this sort of worship of nature. Um, I just want to read a passage because it'll give an, an indication of what the book is like. 
I am a frayed and nibbled survivor in a fallen world, and I am getting along. I am aging and eaten, and have done my share of eating too. I am not washed and beautiful in control of a shining world in which everything fits, but instead am wandering, awed, about on a splintered wreck I've come to care for, whose gnawed trees breathe the delicate air, whose bloodied and scarred creatures are my dearest companions, and whose beauty beats and shines not in its imperfections, but overwhelmingly in spite of them, under the wind-rent clouds, upstream and down. Simon Wheel says simply, let us love the country of here below. It is real. It offers resistance to love. I just love her so much. Like She's wonderful. And I've only read this book. I've never read any of her other stuff. But she's an incredible... You never read any of her fiction? No. Huh. No, but I, I, I just... This is one of those books that I always say is like one of my favorite nature books. But I haven't read it in so long. So I really, really need to reread it. Um, but if anybody out there... You know, we've, we've brought this up a couple times with Cheryl Strait's book, Wild. And Todd, you brought up that essay... Mm-hmm. I, I was just yeah, thinking about that. Yeah, and the difference between, you know, that essay was about how Cheryl Strait's Wild is a memoir and not a nature book. And, right. I, you know, I think that Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is not a memoir at all. It is clearly just a nature book because it's just her. You don't really get to know that much about her life, really. It's mostly just her reflecting on the animals or the the trees around her yeah i mean it, it's like it's like walden yeah. you know i i think it's yeah. it, it's a, a modern retelling of walden right. basically you know it, but i remember it having um a more close relationship to actual religion i mean i i i don't know if i've read it in since i read it in college i think i read it in a class at the same time we read walden yeah. well, she um, brings in... but i remember something about evolution yeah. in there that some point she makes about evolution yeah she brings in some some some. She makes references to a creator and yeah. I mean, it's it's philosophically, I'm not like a hundred percent on board. To, you know, but in terms of the writing and 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 the sense of, I guess she has a series of epiphanies. You know, she has these, mm-hmm. it, that every chapter, every couple of pages builds to an epiphany, like the one I just read. This 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 insight that she's drawing from an encounter with the the world. I mean, there's no other people in this book. If I remember, it's just her and thinking about these things. And I love that. The other book that I was going to talk about was Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, which is a much funnier, more carefree version of the same thing. Uh, It's about his time as a park ranger. It's brilliant and very funny and much more political. And, um, you know, he's he's he wrote that in the 60s and it was right after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. So it's 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 a much more ecological sort of cry call to arms. Um, And it's brilliant and and wonderful and very philosophical. Whereas Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is more spiritual is the word and, and, and not not just in the sense that she's seeking a transcendence but that it's softer, more interested in reflection and meditation, and and it's it's there's a sense of seeking answers from from this encounter with nature. Whereas I feel like with Edward Abbey, it's more about the brutality of nature and what that what confronting the nothingness that that nature offers him, what he can take away from that. You know what I is interesting is that I, I was thinking about as you're talking about that essay that we um, talked about that was uh, sort of rebuking Cheryl Strayed's book. So it was an essay that was in the LA Review of Books, and we'll, we'll put a link up again to it on our Facebook since we're talking about it now. 
Um, but sort of rebuking Cheryl Strayed for not writing a nature book. And it strikes me that maybe the kind of nature books that you know we think about, like this book or like Walden or even like something like Jack London, don't get written as much anymore because people crave in essays specifically less people thinking about themselves and less interact and more interacting with other people and showing the world through the conflict of being one person against another or one person in the world with other things that directly interact with them other than thought. Right. And I think yeah. a book like Pilgrim Creek is about thinking. Walden is about thinking. And I think the books we tend to read now are more about Action. acting. But that's, Socializing. that's a little depressing, right. don't you think? I mean, in a way that means we should probably be think like we should probably be seeking these books out more or seeking these moments out more because it means that we're getting more and more distracted and busier with screens and social content like nature is like that's the result of there's less wilderness you know we don't have mm -hmm. any wilderness nature experiences anymore um which is why we end up going to sea world <laughs> or zoos which right we'll talk about in a minute <laughs> <laughs> and now we go to SeaWorld where we'll have a fish fry sandwich. Woohoo! Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. So today we're going to talk about um, something that's sort of obsessing to me of late, which is human interaction with wild animals. And it sort of started recently for me when I saw a documentary that I suspect many of you saw because it was very popular just a couple weeks ago called Blackfish, Blackfish. on CNN. That's what we call it in my house. Blackfish. Blackfish. You have to whisper it like an old seaman. Like old seaman? <laughs> That was too easy. That was easy. Continue on. You learned that one around the barn? Um, at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> so Blackfish is a documentary about the whale Tilikum, who um, has killed two different trainers at water parks. Um, the most recent being um, a SeaWorld trainer named Don Branchot, who... Uh, was killed um, just a couple years ago, and which set off this huge change in the way humans work with um, killer whales at SeaWorld, and, and we'll talk more about that. So I watched this documentary. It was really upsetting, profoundly upsetting, and so I had to go and find everything I could about um, this whale and about this topic. And so I, we found this fantastic essay called The Killer in the Pool, which it seems like the documentary is based upon by a writer named Tim Zimmerman, which was in Outside Magazine. So that's one essay we're going to talk about. But I'm also, um, and this is this is not a joke, deathly afraid of chimpanzees. And I have a horrible, long-standing fear of chimps because they will eat your face. Mm -hmm. And there was a story about um, in Southern California about this couple who were attacked by chimpanzees at a park. Uh, and this guy had his fingers ripped off, his eye gouged out, his testicles ripped off, and his ass chewed up. And that was the sensational part of the story. And then there was a wonderful, horrible essay about this attack uh, and how it came to be called The Worst Story I Ever Heard um, by Rich Shapiro, which was an Esquire. And then finally, um, 
another thing I'm definitely afraid of, which is being eaten alive by a bear. <laughs> and there's a fantastic <laughs> essay called A Death in Yellowstone uh, by Jessica Gross that talks about grizzly bear deaths. Um, so it's a little bit different than what we normally talk about on the show, but I think it's something that is interesting. Um, how humans react with wild animals, what we expect out of them, and why we are surprised, I think, sometimes when they do what wild animals do, which is act like wild animals. Um, but let's, let's talk first about the killer in the pool. Um, were, were, had either of you seen the documentary before you read the essay? Oh, yes. I was obsessed with it for... The, I saw it the first weekend it came out, I think, here in Hartford. And I, I evangelized about it like crazy. I, I think I sent a lot of people to that movie theater because I, I loved it so much. Um, so I loved the way that it started by... Um, it shows you the capture of this one uh, baby orca and you realize about 10 minutes into the movie that this is this orca you're going to follow through its um, life of killing um, and it's really sympathetically done and it's just a really good movie so I loved it I think the documentary is probably better than this article because this article is much more sort of factual and for me way less of an emotional experience watching that documentary was so emotional and you, you know I mean it, it's it's hard in text to get across the the awe-inspiring beauty of a killer whale and oh, yeah. the power of it you know and when you see them on film picking people up and you know hurling them in the air as part of a show it's such it's such a weird visual image when you know it's a documentary about people dying at the hands of one of these animals or in the jaws of one of these animals to see the animals then tossing these people around playfully mm -hmm. is so disturbing. And you can see that it's just a, a slight, slight twist, you know, and b b between something being really cool to watch and something being absolutely horrifying. I agree. I mean, I think one thing that's great about the documentary that I think doesn't necessarily come through in the text is there's this amazing shot, I think, right before they start the credits, where there's this whale coming up out of the water, and your brain is, like, in Jaws mode, and you're thinking, mm -hmm. I'm going to see a whale attack a person, and it's just driving through the water, and you it, the suspense and the way that it's built is so scary, and then it shoots out of the water, and you realize that this is a show being filmed, and, you know, people are flying through there, and everyone's applauding, and it's the idea of the movies to get you to see killer whales in a new way as powerful beasts that are <laughs> playing <laughs> with human flesh in the form of a SeaWorld show, so. Well, and I, I think the what the essay does, and I think what the documentary does quite well, though, um, and I think the documentary does it a little bit better, too, is the unbelievable uh, nature of this beast, that it's not a toy. It's not, it's not a chew toy that you throw into the water and it bounces around. This is something with familial bonds. This is something that feels and makes noise. And, um, that lives the human, the, human lifespan. The, the lives a human yeah. lifespan and has relationships. Huge brain. And each family has its own dialect. Like, it's yeah. crazy. It, it's an amazing thing. And they also helped save the Earth in Star Trek Three, was it? Or Star Trek no, Four? those were sperm whales. Oh, okay. Well, at no, any rate, no, 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 those were those were humpback whales. whales. Kind of, those are humpback, humpback whales. whales. Yeah, humpback whales. Oh um, gosh, you guys have a lot to learn. <laughs> But I think what this essay does, um, what this article does particularly well, is it, you know, it lays out the case for why places like SeaWorld are counter to 
the nature of these animals and, mm-hmm. and why keeping them in captivity is doing no one any favors and can lead to something like a whale doing something a whale would do, which is maybe eat something that comes into its plate. Well, actually, more, more so than that, I feel like a lot of what I got from this article is the sense of that because we're putting them in this context where we keep them in a tight cage, they don't socialize, they're taken away, we're perverting their nature so much right. and expecting them to still be friendly because there has never been an attack on a human in the wild from a right. whale. And so the, the fact that, you know, they're not sharks, but, you know, they're, they... They don't actually kill people. They probably would be fine with people swimming with them in the wild, like people swimming with dolphins. But the fact that we take this huge animal, they kept them in these little cages or these little um, pens. Yes. It sounds like this is such a perversion of this thing's being, this creature's being, that there's no way it's not going to have drastic mental effects or behavioral effects. This particular whale, whale, Tilly, was basically abused by the female whales that it was put in captivity with that would just constantly attack him over and over and over again. Because in the whale community, it is a maternalistic society versus a paternalistic society. And they would just beat the shit out of him. Um, it, it, I mean, it's it's upsetting in a lot of fundamental ways. But I think as a piece of writing, it does something which is not that much different in a way than what To Build a Fire does by Jack London, right. which is it begins to get you to empathize with the animal. It, it anthropomorphizes them by using their own actual um, lives. You know, you begin to understand that they have a distinct life from humans, but we anthropomorphize that relationship in order to feel empathy for them. Right. I think I totally agree, and I'm glad we're talking about this, because I think what this essay does, and maybe what this moment in animal history does, is to find the balance between anthropomorphication and um, just total, you know, animals are trainable, they are basically robots that we can understand and control and contain. And that's, you know, that's always been the struggle with humans' relationships to animals, as well as most animal writing it's either one or the other it's like they're just a tool or they are something so emotional as to be unbelievable but to allow that animals might have emotional lives that we can't understand um is something that i really liked about this essay as well as um a lot of uh, which was the other one i guess the, the grizzly one kind of does that too We'll get to that later. But I, I love that in, in that we can study orcas up the wazoo, but we'll never be able to fully understand their emotional lives because mm-hmm. the communication just will never be there. Or will it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a whole idea that they talk about in this essay of the friendly Shamu. So there's this uh, kid, this drifter, I guess, who breaks into Sea World and they find him dead in... Um, Tilikum's pen. And, you know, there's, we've been sold this idea that Shamu is this friendly creature and you can ride on his nose and all these sorts of things. But if you fall into his pool, the, there's no training that goes along with that necessarily. I mean, wh- what is the animal supposed to do? I hate to empathize more with the animal than with the human in this case that dies. But I also just think, man, there's, there's, just because we're at the top of the food chain doesn't mean we can't get eaten. Well, and the um, other thing is, like, the idea of, like, training is a perfect fail-safe. It's like we haven't been able to 
train the perfect human. Humans kill each other every day. So why would we expect that we would be able to perfect an animal as if it were a machine? Yeah. I think it's so absurd. I, I hate zoos. I hate all water parks. I think it's complete bullshit. I think the idea, it's a, to me, it's, a, it, it, it's so contradictory to want a wild experience, to want an encounter with a wild animal, whether it be a whale show or seeing a tiger 10 feet away from you, to want that. And so in order to do that, recreating a fake version of that where these poor animals are tortured, kept behind bars, you know, they have, you know, problems procreating, they have problems socializing. Like, it's the dumbest thing. And, like, there's this pathetic zoological argument that, like, oh, we're educating people. There's, I think it's completely disgraceful. I don't think we should have any zoos. I don't think we should have any water parks. And I'm so glad, like, this one-two punch of Co- The Cove, if you guys saw that mm-hmm. documentary, mm-hmm. and then Blackfish are finally bringing this to attention because it's, like... We can't Disneyfy these animals, you know? You can't make a for-profit billion-dollar industry out of owning wild animals and putting them on show for people. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't mind the idea of people going into an, an animal's environment, a safari or whatever it takes, because that, to me, you, there's a level of appreciation for, you know, the wildness. But when you take the wildness away from these animals put them in a box like that's not a wild animal anymore like like julia said that's a machine you're expecting mm-hmm. it to act like a machine and you're you're no longer having that encounter that you craved so much or that you appreciated so it completely contradicts the initial desire to be around or see an animal so to me i've never found it interesting like zoos you know by the age of like 11 i just remember being bored at zoos like oh and then kind of getting sad because yeah. these animals in their own shit. And you're like, this is depressing. I'm totally, I'm like an animal lover, but I'm an animal lover to the extent that I don't think humans should own any of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> except for like cat? the ones that we've, yeah, I think like. <laughs> what about my two dom- dogs? If we've domesticated these animals and we're taking care of them, there's clearly a, a good relationship there. But when you're talking about, I don't know, chimpanzees or anything of uh, that's not a, basically a dog or a cat. like no like what are you doing you're just I, I think it's really upsetting and then i also think well if you know if we didn't save some of them there would be none of them people would hunt them to the point of extinction um and that's that's another question of you know how much role as humans do we play in both the eliminating of um biodiversity and the contributing to biodiversity mm-hmm. you know do we let something die because it is going to die or is it our duty to keep them alive i i don't you know i i think using animals for sport or using animals for um just to watch them i i find it like you do Ryder. i find it mystifying yeah um but well, let's move on to the chimp yeah i also article, have two dogs the, the chimp <laughs> article is interesting to me though based on what you're saying because like that is weird on this other level of like ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, why do you need to own a chimpanzee? Because clearly, this thing is dangerous after the age of seven or whatever. Right. You know, chimps are only nice creatures until a certain age, and then you're just ruining this thing's life. Like, right. as I understand that these people, uh, we should summarize maybe a little bit the article. It's it's following these two people who raise a chimp from infancy until he was in his twenties, and then they ended up putting him in a 
a, 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 a like a sanctuary for animals, and then while visiting him, they were attacked by other chimpanzees. Which is the craziest goddamn story on it. So weird. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! I was waiting the whole article for them to be attacked by their own chimpanzee because you just no. sort of assume that that's what's happening. But yeah, it's it's. But even just them owning their chimpanzee, I was like, I understand that you you have this this connection with this thing, and obviously this animal has a connection with you, but you own it, you know? And mm-hmm. also, they keep talking about him as their son. I and really, it's and weird. it's really weird. It's I'm like, weird. you know what? Your son would talk back to you by the age of 40. <laughs> like, your son wouldn't just be, you know? So, like, this isn't a normal, like, functioning parent-child relationship. Not that they necessarily... <laughs> No, because Not one of them is a chimp. <laughs> yeah, but didn't you get the feeling like oh, they yeah. were arguing, like, this is oh, our absolutely. son. Absolutely. We, and it's like, no, it's not. This is a play toy that that you had a very cool relationship with that went beyond your average stuffed animal. But that's all we're talking about, you know? Like, this, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't your average stuffed animal. It was animate, so it did go beyond the average okay. well, stuffed let me, animal. Okay, have you ever guys ever heard about NIM, like the NIM Project NIM? Yes. Okay. I haven't. Did you see that documentary? Okay. Mm-hmm. So Nim Nim Chimsky was it was a professor that I actually Nim had Chimsky, at Columbia. Okay. Yeah. This professor named Herbert Terrace, and um, he was by by far the worst teacher I've ever had. Oh wow. Uh, he was my psych professor. He was terrible, and we had to read his textbook. It was awful. But he is world famous because he was the one who really debunked a lot of ape language uh, theories. So he raised a chimpanzee from infancy and taught sign language and did all of the like sign language studies in the 70s and 80s and there's a great documentary that cor- that uh, tracks the whole course of nim this chimpanzee's life and it, w- it was just you know he was very open about how naive he was at first like hoping that he could learn to communicate with his chimpanzee to a point where the chimpanzee would like introduce him to other chimps in the wild and they would you know because there was this sense that like oh if we can teach them language if they can communicate with us and what he discovered you know by being as rigorous as he could through years and years of study was that really they were just learning sequences to get food Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like that's not the same thing as language and that's his whole argument there's still people that debate this otherwise people think that their chimps are talking to them or that dolphins have language or whatever but you know he he, he's still kind of hasn't really been proven wrong that like you can train animals complicated sequences especially high functioning animals like chimpanzees but that's not the same thing as a language a language has to have spontaneous um combinations of new words and to be uh spoken for its own sake as opposed to just but what 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 about you know the emotional thing so in this essay you know there seems to be for better or worse there seems to be an emotional connection between the, both the chimp and the people. So right. the, the, the people, mm-hmm. the Davises, I believe their names are, and the chimp, the, the Davises clearly love the chimp, and it seems like Mo, the chimp, has Love's an affinity them. for them. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I think any of us who have pets, we believe our pets love us. Um, my and, cat you know, there's, is not like me. But my dogs it. love you, if that makes you any happier. Um, but the question you have to ask is at what cost, right? Right. Like, at what cost do you have this personal loving relationship with something that might rip your testicles off with right. its teeth? Like, there, no, that's not, I'm sorry. There, you know, I, there's a, a fairly famous story about a, a woman um, who, her husband died and they had a chimp and she kept the chimp 
and the chimp started sleeping in her bed, and he'd start acting out, and so she, you know, fed it Xanax and stuff like that, and then the chimp ate her neighbor's face off, oh, yeah. and, you know, she had to, the cops had to kill him. Um, I think she, I think the person who got their face eaten off is the person that ended up having the, the face um, surgery, where they, yeah. the face transplant. Um, so, you know, there's, now that's a crazy person, obviously, um, but there is that, that emotional connection people have with animals. Clearly in this story, the Davises had that connection. Clearly it seems that Mo had that connection to them too, but at the end of the day, Mo also bit the finger off of somebody who stuck their finger in his cage, and the Davises foolishly think it's because she had uh, red nail polish, and so that the chimp would think it was a piece right, of licorice. They rationalize it. They rationalize it. She, he bit her finger off because that's what chimps do, clearly, because this guy ended up getting all of his fingers bitten off right. by if you, if a you, crazy roaming chimp. Chimps in the wild, they eat each other. Right. Like they're, they're, they're wild animals. You know, they're, they have family units. They have affections and um, they have affection and emotions, of course. But is that the same thing as a being that we communicate with and invite into our homes the way we do our dogs or our cats mm. or, you know, like, no, if a cat, if a dog is biting everybody, it's put down, you know, you can't function. So I, I don't understand the impulse at all. You're taking a chimp straight out of the out of the wild. It's not descended from many generations of chimps that had a successful life living with humans like mm -hmm. dogs and cats do. And that's part of the concern with Tilikum too, is it's like this super violent orca that has now been used to breed <laughs> something like 20% of all the orcas in yeah. SeaWorld are descended from this very violent animal. And that's, you know, disturbing. And so when, when you're talking about dog violence, you know, they're bred, hopefully, and trained so that after many generations, they become very, very docile. Well, which, which leads us to the grizzly bear attack. So actually, you found the story, didn't you, Julia? Is, did you well, find this essay? I had... No, this was me. No, yeah. you did. How, how did you find this essay, writer? Oh, I'm obsessed with bears. I think I've talked about this. <laughs> yes. oh, oh, just my bear fetish. No problem. Oh, yeah. Bears are, I love like, bears. I am terrified of bears. Like, yeah, it just scares the shit out of me. Um, because you know, especially because I love the wilderness and I go. I love going places where there are bears, and I am just constantly terrified. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I've been to Yellowstone. I've done like two or three backpacking trips through Yellowstone, and they have to give you the speech before you go out into the backcountry. You have to get a wilderness permit to get back. You know, and so you get your permit, and they're like. Oh, yeah, so you'll probably see a bear. It'll probably see a grizzly. If it charges you, it's probably a bluff charge, nine times out of ten. You're like, what, what do you what mean? What about the nine tenth times time? Out of ten? <laughs> exactly. Like, well, the tenth time, just grab what's important to you and play dead. And you're like, oh, oh God. My God. So I've never actually had a grizzly bear encounter. I've only encountered uh, black bears in Yosemite. Um, but, I mean, it's just terrifying. It just keeps me up at night in my tent, <laughs> basically. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's something, you know, my brother... Uh, and I, we grew up going backpacking and, and camping all the time. And for whatever reason, we both have this huge fear of bears. So, um, which makes me wonder why you guys, why, yeah, but why would you then go to where they are? Like, I, I don't like sharks, so I don't swim in the deep sea. Yeah, I don't, you, but you know, I really love wilderness and I love nature. And that's, that to me is that, that's the cool paradox is that you, you have to take those chances in order to have the kind of intense nature experiences that, 
you want. Like if 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 we just walk down nature paths in nice beautiful parks, that's not the same thing as you know three days from the nearest road that you hiked and carried everything on your back and you're looking at the stars at night. And, you know, that's a different experience. And part of it is because of the wildness, because you're open to you're, you're taking a risk. You're, you're open to something that could be life threatening on a moment's notice. And I think that's really important. I mean, to me, that's the, an essential characteristic of connecting with my humanity is to recognize those that encounter and to have those experiences. And they get harder and harder to have, because even like like I was saying, I have to go get a backcountry permit, even to, to put on a backpack and walk off the main path of Yellowstone. Like, that's ridiculous to me. But I get it. Like, that's the way our world works now. Um, so you just have to, I don't know, I, I, I crave those kinds of experiences. And so, you know, I have to deal with bears. I have to go into bear country. <laughs> but here's the thing. In Alaska, when I went backpacking in Alaska, we carried guns, you know, because right. they allow you to carry guns. They're like, yeah, there's a bunch of crazy grizzly bears, but you can carry guns. Yellowstone doesn't let you bring guns in. So it's like, well, wait a minute. If, I, if this thing could eat me, shouldn't I be able to protect myself? Right. That was my, my libertarian moment. But, yeah. uh, but, <laughs> but you know. It, the first it, one. <laughs> It's very comforting. It's very comforting to have a gun. Right. You're backpacking in Alaska and like you're pretty sure you're I, again, I didn't see a bear or we saw a bear on a hill, but like didn't have an encounter at all. But I felt a lot better sleeping at night with the rifle next to me. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I mean, this is so interesting tying back to the SeaWorld discussion, because this the price you pay for animals having freedom is your own risk. You know, if you want right. to see them. You know, first of all, you have to meet, have the means and opportunity or whatever to go out and, and hike into Alaska. But, you know, you also have to know that you can't have a gun. I think that's really interesting that Yellowstone doesn't let you have a gun. They know it's dangerous, but they're saying you are taking that danger upon yourself. So you, yep. your tool is your own intelligence and knowledge. Yep. And that's it. <laughs> And, you know, that's in the Jack London story. That's all he has is his tools and intelligence. And he freezes to death and the wolf goes and runs off for warmth. Here in this grizzly bear article, so it, it talks about a couple different deaths at, at uh, Yellowstone. But it focuses on um, a person who died uh, not too long ago, a man who uh, presumably was in 2011 sitting on a log eating some lunch and was eaten by a bear. And not just killed by a bear. And that's the that's the distinction that they make so there's there's this band of justice that they have that they will go out and they will kill a bear if it eats a person yeah. but if but that's it what just I loved about this kills article, a person yeah, they it won't gets to the it gets to yeah. the sort of forensics of bear investigation because there's this question of when do we kill a bear you know and right. it's like if a bear attacks a person and because that person was trying to antagonize it in some way which happens i mean that's mm -hmm. like I found this article fascinating just for the history of Yellowstone and yeah. like how, you know, this explosion of popularity of the national park system and what that means for something like a grizzly bear, which is just this animal that was going extinct, but is now protected as, you know, so we protect these animals because we want to preserve this nature experience. But then if we get attacked or something, we're supposed to kill it in retaliation. It's very bizarre. Um, so, yeah, so they come down to determining that this bear had stashed this guy's dead body, right. which meant that the bear was going to come back for food. And this was the second killing, and they were able to test the DNA, just like a crime scene, mm -hmm. and determine that this was the same bear that had killed another person earlier, uh, a couple months earlier. And so it brings up the question of um, whether bears get a taste for human blood. <laughs> 
which, which it turns out is impossible to find out because they kill. <laughs> I will quote uh, the wonderful movie The Edge. <laughs> He's a manhunter, which is all about a bear getting a taste for blood and then chasing them across the Alaskan wilderness. Which, not surprisingly, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, God. Uh, so, yeah. But it is interesting, and I never thought about it. You know, you hear this, like, oh, it's a manhunter once they get a taste for human blood. And I love that in the article, the one person's like, yeah, how are you going to test that? Like, wh <laughs> why would you ever know if a bear got a taste for human blood? Because we kill them right after, you know, they're like, you're not going to use human population. If right. somebody is eaten by a bear and clearly the bear is seeking humans for food, it, they kill the bear. So we have no evidence one way or the other whether bears actually do get a taste for human blood. But the, the interesting thing also in that same section, basically, is the question that the, the journalist makes is, well, after the bear kills the person, why wouldn't they eat them? <laughs> you know, right. like, right. And, and so part of the, the process of deciding whether or not to kill the people or to kill the bears, rather, is to divine the intent of the bear. And, I mean, it's impossible. How, how Fascinating. Do you, how do you divine the intent of the bear? So there's at one point where they spot this bear, um, that the same bear that they later kill, and after he has, or it's a she, has killed uh, someone else, and they decide, well, we're not going to shoot it and kill it because we don't believe its intent was to kill that person. We're just going to let it go. It did its own thing. But then, you know, two's a pattern, apparently, and so they, they took him out or took her out. So, it, I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre um, math that gets to the point where they decide when to, you know, pursue justice. But it's also just a fascinating thing for me in this article as well, that question of vengeance, we must get vengeance for an animal killing a person. Why? Why? <laughs> I know. Well, it's the taste for human flesh thing is the fear. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what I love about this Yellowstone situation is that they are trying to prevent that. You know, they're mm -hmm. trying to logically... It's basically like a bear stand your ground law. It's like if right. some idiot human <laughs> comes at you, you may eat them one time. Right. You right. get one. Otherwise, <laughs> you're clearly on some kind of rampage. So they, they go around to all the bears and they say, okay, one time if someone comes at you. But see, to me, that gets to the heart of the 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 whole national park system and the whole notion of a park or a, a real wild park. It's just weird. It's, it, it, and I, I think we're at a point where I, I, we can't even sustain the population that goes to these parks. Um, and this goes back to Edward Abbey, uh, desert solitaire, which I highly recommend if people are interested in the question of like wilderness and, and, and having, a park system because he really goes in depth about this. He was one of the first proponents of no cars being allowed in national parks, which mm -hmm. has actually been instituted in Grand Canyon and a couple other parks. Uh, I think Yosemite doesn't allow cars in anymore either because they get too crowded. Like these mm -hmm. places just get packed with people. And it's, uh, it's again, the Disneyfication of the wilderness experience. It's what do people expect? If you want to go into the wild, it shouldn't be this organized, perfectly safe, sanitized experience that is Disneyland. Go to a park. You know, go to Central Park. Go somewhere where it's really safe and obviously safe. But if you want a wilderness experience, I don't even... I mean, Yellowstone is way too organized for me. Like, you drive through there and you get stuck in traffic jams. It's horrible. Mm. It's horrible. And you you hike half a day in any direction and you will be completely...
we have a very weird relationship with nature as Americans in the 21st century. And it's, it's like, I think all of these articles get at that in some way. It's like, we want to have these experiences with animals. We want to have wilderness kind of in our lives because we think it's important. We think that connection's important, but then we want it to be safe. We want it to not maul our faces off. Well, or... And for a lot of people, I mean, and children especially, and this is the big catch-22, and this is kind of the SeaWorld argument, but I think it applies better to national parks in a less smarmy way. It's like, the more that people have a good experience with nature, the more they will feel a connection with it and love it. So how do you mm-hmm. create those experiences so that we preserve it? Because if we're saying that you know, nature should really be devoid of humans, then fine, we'll make nature devoid of humans. The one tiny patch of it in Utah where no one ever goes because we've paved over it all. So how I just you... drove through that area. It was, it was, it was, they, you could fill with animals. No one would ever know. <laughs> so the question is, how do we create that connection without destroying it? And that's, I think there's, there's literally no answer to that. That is the earth's greatest problem i feel like there's two there's such good examples right in front of us of what happens when we don't know enough about nature so you know you have the land animals which we know a Mm -hmm. lot about bears horses dogs whatever and we've pretty much destroyed them all and then we have the sea where animals are other than whales and fish i mean and certain kinds of fish only have been Mm -hmm. you know they they've been slaughtered in mass but there's so many animals in the ocean that we don't know anything about and that are so cool and they're basically protected because no one can see them but that means we don't value their environment and now their environment is destroyed and there's animals dying that we didn't even know existed in the first place so that's what happens when we have no knowledge of what we're losing until it's gone it's all so depressing i believe (laughs) it was the band cinderella who once said don't know what you got until it's gone. So, guys, the final question for the podcast yes. obviously has to be, what is the scariest, orcas, chimps, or bears? Chimps. Bears. Orcas. Chimps. <laughs> Why chimps. would you be scared of an orca? They've never attacked you No, no, no. I'm kidding. Um, no, between A chimp chimps will and bears... eat your fucking nuts. A chimp will pull off your nuts and eat them. Okay, if you if you stumble upon on a trail, I guess, a, a, if are we talking a gang of chimps? <laughs> Because if we're, I mean, gang. if we're there with a gang, fuck yeah, I would, take, I would rather have a bear encounter than a gang of chimps. Yes, but they'll like, pull you limb to limb. If I'm hiking through the woods and I stumble upon one or the other, uh, I would rather, I would rather have a chimp because a bear will like just do whatever it wants. Whereas like a one chimp, I could probably scare away. No, one chimp has the power of like ten men or something crazy like that. Uh, but a bear has the power of. Ten yeah, chimps of Greystoke. <laughs> a bear, you know, bears can run like fifty miles per hour. Like you're just, it does whatever it decides. You know what's scary I, about the orcas though yeah. is that that you're combined with like the power of like the deep ocean. You know, if right. you were to fall into the ocean and an orca was attacking you, which has never happened, but if you have that nightmare. You know, then you could drown. You could just sink, yeah. you know, hundreds of feet. There's a lot of things. Well, that's just, that's just a shark. I mean, let's just say, let's, okay. what's right. scarier? A shark, a bear, or a chimpanzee? I think shark is, like, 
I mean, that's pretty brutal. I don't know. Look, that chimp story, the guy was awake while the chimp was eating its lips off. So is it the intelligence? That's the thing. Uh, Yes. Is it the fact that, like, you think it's your friend? Yes. So it's the deviousness of a (laughs) chimpanzee that scares you. It's like, oh, this is my pet Mo. Oh, it's... It's the shiesty chimp. It's the shiesty chimp. All right. I think that's our conclusion. (laughs) Scariest is a gang of shiesty chimps. That's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Ben Fountain's novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Join our Goodreads page. Thanks for listening.